The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord so our Gospel passage this morning is taken from the Last Supper. After Jesus has shared the meal with his disciples when he institutes the Holy Communion, and Judas has just gone out to betray him, Jesus begins a series of teachings that will continue for the next four chapters of John. And after he spends a few sort of confusing verses predicting his impending death and resurrection, the key verse here is in verse 34 where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now he calls this a new commandment. But what's new here is not so much the command to love, but the means by which the Lord intends to empower his disciples to love through the model of his own sacrifice that he's about to to do and the power of the Holy Spirit whom he'll impart at Pentecost. Because you see, by this point, Jesus has long been teaching this command to love. In his two greatest commandments that we recite each Sunday, he says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then perhaps most radically, he's taught the love command in his Sermon on the Mount, where he commands us to love our enemies. But our first lesson today from Leviticus shows the love command is rooted in the Old Testament, where God instructs the Israelites in the way of love. In this passage, he teaches them When you reap the harvest of your land or pick the fruit of your vineyard, leave some for the poor and the the sojourner. And do not steal. Do not be dishonest. He, He tells them to be people of their word, to honor his name. God tells them to care about the welfare of their workers and the disadvantaged. He says, don't show partiality to the poor or the rich. Don't slander. Don't harbor hatred in your heart or take vengeance or bear a grudge. And then God sums it up there at the end of verse 18. This is where Jesus takes it from. God says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, because I am the Lord. This morning, I want to begin a mini-series focusing upon this command to love our neighbor, which Jesus identified as the characteristic that should distinguish Christians from others. But I need to make clear which neighbors we're talking about here. See, Jesus' command to love our neighbor most certainly 
applies to those who are closest to us, right? Our spouse, our children, our friends. And perhaps it applies to them most of all. But the neighbors I want us to consider how to love are those who are less familiar. That is, the individuals or groups of people whom we might label as them, as in us versus them. So our enemies, people for whom we are most inclined to feel hatred or contempt, and yet whom Jesus has clearly still called us to love. You'll recall that in Luke chapter 10, a Jewish expert in the moral law, having just cited the command to love thy neighbor from Leviticus, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus is compelled to respond by telling a parable about a good Samaritan, knowing full well that Jews and Samaritans hated one another. Seeking to love our enemies is a very different venture than trying to love those closest to us. Both are challenging, but they're different. So to explore what it looks like to live out this command toward the thems in our lives, the the enemies, I want to share some of the musings of author and pastor Dan White Jr., whose recently published book identifies our biggest obstacle to this sort of which he suggests is fear. Fear. You can see I'm going to be competing with that today. When I was a little kid, there were a few years there where I was convinced that Freddy Krueger lived under my bed. For those of you who are not familiar with Freddy, He's a villain from the horror film series A Nightmare on Elm Street who uses a gloved hand with razors to kill his victims in their dreams. And even though I'd never seen any of these films, honest to God, I'd never seen them. In fact, I still haven't. I had seen enough posters of the movies and copies of the videos at Blockbuster Copies with Freddy on the cover that that my imagination took over from there. And fearing that Freddy had taken up residence under my bed led to many nights where it was quite difficult to get to sleep. Well, I'm happy to report that I no longer fear that Freddy is under my bed. I thought I'd give that up when I got married. As adults, we graduate out of such fears, right? But... But White suggests that this doesn't mean that you and I have rid ourselves of monsters that may not really be there. Instead, as adults, we outgrow specific fears, but we trade them in for new ones and learn to mask those fears with a certain amount of sophistication. See, while a certain level of fear is expected in children, in adults it's commonly viewed as a weakness, as weakness, For example, White once asked a man who'd come to him for some pastoral counseling, he asked him, what do you fear? But the man shot back, fear? Fear's not an issue for me. I'm just afraid my family won't turn out the way it should. Now listen to that. Fear is not an issue for me. 
but I'm just afraid my family won't turn out the way it should. White says the guy couldn't even hear the confession he'd just made. See, even though so much of what people think and do is motivated by fear, we find creative ways to dress it up and to hide it. But Jesus knew. White says as Jesus ministered and discipled people, they often came at him with their doctrines and spiritual cliches and their religious status. But Jesus had x-ray vision to see that much of what, much of what that was masking was fear. Consequently, there are almost 40 occasions in the Gospels where Jesus asked his disciples or the crowd, why are you so afraid? Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard identified fear as the core illness in the human condition. And we fear all sorts of things, right? But according to White, it is our fear of the other, the one who is different from us, that causes us to create monsters out of human beings. Now, our fear of the other is rooted in our survival instinct, which in the early days of humankind was most commonly activated in response to threats from a wild animal or a rival tribesman. In other words, kill-or-be-killed situations, right? But as the world has changed and developed to where our physical well-being is not at risk multiple times a day, the threats we are most prone to perceive now come in the form of ideas and opinions. That's what we are most prone to fear. In other words, now, in today's world, we are likely to perceive those whose morals or politics or race or religion is different from ours, to perceive them as threats to our well-being. As White says, fear thrives in the shadows of our opinions, our rants, our judgments, and our preferred labels, and causes us to turn those who view the world differently or who live differently than we do into monsters. He says people don't even have to do heinous, evil things for us to see them as monsters. We just have to feel a tad bit better than they are. That's all it takes. So who is it that you or I have made into monsters? It could be Muslims or Mormons, democratic socialists or those who wear MAGA hats, white nationalists or environmentalists, Wall Street one percenters or people on welfare, gun rights advocates or champions of gay marriage or those on the opposite side from us of the abortion debate or the creation-evolution debate. White brings the point home when he says that for some right-leaning folks, Jesus would have told his parable of the Good Samaritan as the good progressive. While for those who lean to the left, he would have told it as the good conservative. We have turned people into monsters when we no longer see them as we see ourselves. The problem with 
problem with making monsters out of anyone is that Scripture teaches us that all people are created in the image of God and loved by God. Therefore, He calls us to love them too. I took the liberty of changing our second lesson today to 1 John 4 as it was a little more on topic than Revelation. There in verse 16, John writes, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And, and White explains this, that, that love ultimately pulls us outward, toward others, toward the stranger, the widow, the foreigner, the poor, and most shockingly, toward our enemies. This love, he says, is the spirit of Jesus in us, around us, available to us, which is why we are invited here to live or abide in love. But two verses later, John explains, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And what this teaches is that love and fear are opposed to one another. Love and fear are opposed to one another. Therefore, while the perfect love of God casts fear out of us, perfect fear will seek to cast out love. White explains fear wants to flat out crush any compassion for anyone unlike me, my neighbor, the stranger, my enemies. Fear limits our senses for feeling, knowing, and recognizing what love even looks like in a given situation. It blinds us to. Ultimately, fear shuts down any potential for relationship. But where does fear come from? Well, we already talked about our survival instinct, but our life experiences can also contribute to our propensity to fear. All of us have probably experienced someone stealing from us, injuring us, letting us down which can cause us to become overprotective of ourselves and to come to feel that fear just makes more sense than love. Fear just makes more sense than the generous, open posture of love that can make us vulnerable to harm. Across our society today, people feel deeply that if we don't stay on high alert, identifying what and who could hurt us, that we are being naive or worse, stupid. White observes that if the recent election cycle reveals anything, it's a society riddled with fear. But he says it's not just threats of terrorism or economic collapse or cyber warfare or the police state or government corruption. No, he says we fear each other. We fear strangers. We fear our neighbors. We fear those who vote differently. We even fear those who parent unlike. We've come to see each other primarily with the glasses of fear on. There's also a physiological component to our fear problem. I know it can sound counterintuitive, but fear feels good. Fear feels good. It, it reminds me of a story I saw a few years back where scientists found that what draws people to carbonated drinks is actually the slight sensation of pain they cause in our tongue. It's true. 
But the way our brains are wired actually inclines us toward fear. On the back of your bulletin, I included a diagram of our brains from White's book that shows the different parts of the brain and the functions they control. So let me take just a moment to explain, if you can put your little nerd caps on. At the bottom, of course, is the brain stem, which controls breathing, heart rate, digestion, excretion, and so forth. Then, to the right of that, we have the cerebellum, which is responsible for voluntary movements such as posture, balance, coordination, and speech. But the biggest part of the brain, you'll see, is known as the cerebrum, which has two different sections, though, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. There will not be a test on this. Well, the amygdala is responsible for our emotions that tend to be more impulsive or reflexive kind of emotions that just spring out of us without us thinking, right? So these would be emotions like disgust or fear or laughter, excitement, our sex drive or, or anger. In other words, so things that just happen, right? Um, but in contrast, higher brain functions, ones that require some contemplation, such as empathy, forgiveness, self-control, patience, hospitality, and listening, these occur in the prefrontal cortex. So what I want you to see here is that even our physiological makeup reflects that fear is a more automatic response. While empathy and forgiveness and so on, basically what Scripture identifies as the fruits of the Spirit, require that we transcend our more primal reactions. So is it any wonder that we need the Holy Spirit's help for this? But to make matters worse, the emotion of fear actually causes the amygdala to release dopamine and serotonin. The brain's feel-good chemicals, right? The same things that drugs make, or, you know, make our brains release. And so the brain releasing these feel-good chemicals with, with fear encourages us to indulge fear more. While the prefrontal cortex does not produce the same feel-good chemical cocktail. In other words, we don't get the same hit off of forgiveness as we do off of fear. We're all addicts. I'm telling you. So all of this may explain why even though the prefrontal cortex is the largest part of our brain, it is the least utilized part by the majority of the population. Get this. Would you believe that scientists estimate that only 10% of the population uses their prefrontal cortex on a regular basis. Don't answer that. It's true. So as you can see, there are even physiological challenges working against our moving beyond fear and into love. But how do we know when we are operating out of our amygdala, acting in fear? Well, when something scares us, our impulse will be to deal with it in one of two ways. Our, 
our amygdala impulse, you might say. One of two ways, either to attack it or avoid it. Either attack it or avoid it. White tells a story about a beautiful Monday morning when he was sipping his coffee and enjoying his day until he made the mistake of checking his email. And there was an email waiting for him with the subject line, You are a liar. Upon opening it, he found his acquaintance had written a tirade against him, assassinating his character using words like jerk, insensitive, dishonest, careless, power-hungry, fake, manipulative. And he later found out this acquaintance had already been saying such things to their mutual friends. So there he was, and he felt it, right? It was him against them. Him against this acquaintance. And White found himself torn between two responses. First, to quickly fire back an email in response. I'm sure we can relate to that impulse. Or second, to imagine how he might avoid ever responding at all. Hiding from this person. But when our only options appear to be to quickly lambast or to run in the opposite direction of everything that freaks us out, that's when we know we are operating in fear. That's when we know we've been polarized. When we believe change will come through attacking back, or through retreating to find people we agree with and and limit our relational connection with those we disagree with. These are the symptoms of polarization. Now, some may believe polarization is a necessary evil to tolerate. It's just the way things are going to have to be. But White insists it is a fear-based evil to obliterate. Wyden says polarization is a fear-based evil to obliterate. He points out that when Satan is identified in Revelation 12 as the accuser, you've all heard that, Satan means the accuser, the Greek word there is category, where we get our English word category, because Satan is constantly encouraging us to categorize people as either good or bad dividing us and fueling animosity between us. Now, many Christians believe conducting themselves in a polarized fashion is what faithfulness to Jesus actually looks like. Turn on the news. I know I certainly struggle with that impulse. But White contends that polarization is actually indicative of spiritual immaturity or emotional regression. He recalls one time when his son was three, and he was tucking his son in and said, I love you, buddy, as he said a thousand times before. But this time his son responded, I only love mama. I don't love you, I just love mama. Now, I have to confess, as a parent, I've actually had some similarly unpleasant experiences. (laughs) those are not fun. But this is actually fairly standard for that stage of childhood development. 
the idea of being able to love both his mom and dad was a tension that White's son was struggling to comprehend, and so he sought just to eliminate the tension by making his world binary, by making it black or white, where everyone is either bad or good. The problem when we do that as adults is that life isn't so cut and dry. Tension, yes, feels uncomfortable and unsafe, but but part of spiritually maturing means coming to grips with that being the way the world is, the way life is, and coming to live in that tension. Now, don't get me wrong. Moving beyond fear and polarization does not mean we stop believing in right or wrong. I, I probably should repeat that. Moving beyond fear and polarization does not mean we stop believing in right or wrong, right and wrong. But it does mean we move beyond viewing people in such simplistic black or white things. So what would it look like to move beyond polarization and to love our neighbors who even feel like our enemies? Well, White suggested instead of responding to the monsters in our lives from out of our amygdala, right, by attacking or avoiding, Jesus presents us with a third option, what we might call the prefrontal cortex option. And that option is to seek to cultivate affection. To seek to cultivate affection for our enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, that you may be like God. Now the world believes, including many Christians, that this is complete nonsense. Jesus was having a bad day. right? Got a little confused there. As one person has said, try this method of love on a tiger and see what happens. And that's a fair point. Practicing enemy love toward a tiger is probably an unwise approach for a zookeeper. But what if it's different with humans? After all, this is precisely what God has done toward us in Christ. When we were polarized against God and our sin, he could have justifiably responded by attacking us, the old lightning bolt, or avoiding, abandoning us. Never going to be in a relationship. But instead, in Jesus, God moved toward us with affection. He moved toward us with affection. When we were polarized against God, he built a bridge toward us by doing what? By making himself vulnerable. Might we begin to creatively imagine how we could build similar bridges? Returning to that nasty email White received, he he decided to move beyond the temptations to attack or avoid in that situation, and to experiment with responding in affection. He says, in trembling fear, I pieced together a gift basket for my acquaintance. 
and planned on delivering it to his house. He says, every item chosen for that basket brought to mind his face and his vicious words, yet at the same time I had to pick things with care and thoughtfulness. I had to imagine what he might enjoy. White says it took him a week to put the basket together. And driving it over to his house was excruciating, he said. He said, when I knocked on the door and the, the guy answered, he said, like a deer in the headlights, I could tell the guy wanted to run away. Right? His amygdala was very active. But I blurted out, before you say anything, I just want to give you this gift. I, I made it for you. I really care about you. And I know you love wine and cheese. And then after spending the next two hours talking at the man's kitchen table, they parted from one another, still disagreeing about some things. But they had forgiven each other. Now, White admits there's no guarantee that every such situation would turn out so positively. But the reality is that most of us don't even consider Befriending our enemies as an option. For most of us, most of the time, it's not even on the table. It's not on the menu. Right? Our menu is attack or, or avoid. And yet, why does cultivating affection for our enemies have such transformative potential? Well, because the greater the distance between us and our enemies, the more fear thrives. Right? So the further we stay distanced from our enemies, the more fear is going to grow. There's this term, siloing. Have you heard this term, siloing, like a silo? On a... This refers to our tendency to interact with mostly like-minded people. White says, we know we are siloing when we are unable to relax and relate with people who don't share our convictions. A friend of mine recently said they, they can't imagine ever moving away from California to, to states where they're seeking to take away a woman's right to choose. But I'm guessing some of you may feel the opposite and are perhaps tempted to pack up and move to my home state of Alabama this week. Well, that is our impulse towards silence. And the scripture so, shows Jesus actively working against it. Returning for a moment to our gospel passage, some may notice that Jesus' commands to the disciples is, is first of all to love one another, right? He's talking to kind of them as this small group of now 11. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. But remember, when he selected the disciples, he chose 12 individuals from all across the divides of a very polarized Jewish society. Both politically and economically within that group, there were people fundamentally opposed to one another. So Jesus modeled this third option for us, this path of affection. Having just shared a meal with them, he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And if we desire to imitate him, further his kingdom, it will come through similar means of vulnerable presence 
making ourselves vulnerable. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should put yourself in danger. We should also be sure not to confuse danger with emotional stress. Emotional stress is sure to come with any effort to befriend our enemies, but are we actually in danger? Maybe not as much as we would think. Next week I want to return by talking about how we might go about cultivating affection, but I want to close with one final story that White tells about a guy named Daryl Davis who has chosen this third option, cultivating affection. Daryl is a descendant of slaves, a black man who for the last 30 years has chosen to engage with members of the Ku Klux Klan. Now he knows the KKK is an organization that hates him, yet this does not deter Daryl. It has actually compelled him to pursue ongoing conversation with grand dragons and imperial wizards. Sometimes he is the first African-American they have ever talked to. Probably key. His work is not marked, though, by tossing insults or even winning verbal shouting matches, but by relational presence with them, sitting with them, eating with them, and showing them a bit of affection. In December of 2017, Daryl reached out to Billy Snuffer, who is a proponent of the Confederate South and thinks the mixing of races is horrible for the country. But Daryl has mastered the art of listening, making eye contact, sitting still, asking questions, not interrupting, staying curious. And he even showed up with Billy when Billy was summoned to court. You see, Billy had fired a gun into the air near a school in Charlottesville during a rally against taking down the Confederate monument there. The judge was going to sentence Billy harshly, but Daryl proposed to the judge that Snuffer meet with him, meet with Daryl instead for regular conversation to hear about the people whom Billy sees as inferior. Now, You'd think Daryl's hopeful outlook were delusional if not for a peek into his bedroom closet where the shocking symbols of transformation hang. KKK robes from those who have left behind the Klan. Every time Daryl inspires a white man to quit the Ku Klux Klan, they surrender their garb to him. It is a powerful sign of the fruitfulness of Daryl's love work. Now I have to confess that I myself am fairly new to this third option of seeking to cultivate affection for my enemies all that much. But I am confident that it's the way of love the Lord calls us to and the purpose of His Holy Spirit who dwells within us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.